Kia ora and welcome to the Kerry Podcast, where we highlight research that weaves together the Word of God in Scripture, the world in which we live, and the work of Christian discipleship. We invite you to join us as we explore ways in which we can live, serve, and witness with Jesus in our constantly changing world. Well, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, my name is John Tucker, and I'm the principal of Kerry Baptist College. Uh, In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Phil Brown. Phil's a preaching and teaching pastor at Redeemer Church in Tauranga and a graduate of Kerry Baptist College. Uh, Phil completed a a Bachelor of Applied Theology at Kerry a few years ago and then a Master's of Applied Theology with a thesis that focused on the preaching of Charles Spurgeon. I had the pleasure of supervising Phil's research and I, I really believe it's got some significant implications for the church today. So if you love Jesus... And if you love his word, the Bible, if you love the church, the local church, and want to see it flourish, then I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Well, Phil, I'm I'm thrilled to be talking with you today, and I'm really looking forward to discussing your research on the preaching of Charles Spurgeon. But before we launch into that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your journey to this point. How'd you get here? Yeah, sure. So as you say, I'm currently the uh, preaching pastor at Redeemer Church in Tauranga. I've been doing that for about a year and a half now uh, on staff, been on the eldership a little longer than that. And uh, yeah, having absolutely the the best time doing that. I uh, can't believe the opportunities I have to serve the Lord and, and use my giftings and yeah, just doing the Christian life with other believers who are seeking to know him more uh, through his word. Uh, it's just a really awesome opportunity. And I hope to be able to do that as as long as possible. It's it's a it's a really sweet spot. So I've been a Christian uh, for about 12 years. Uh, grew up in a Christian home, converted to Jesus, I think had a genuine, I guess, evangelical conversion experience at 18. And uh, yeah, I guess along the road, uh, quite quite quickly with that, began to love theology, began to love, I guess, really deeply digging into uh, scripture and and how uh, that's been understood and how various groups of people have understood that over the years and spent a lot of time reading and listening to lectures and things like that and just really had a love for it and a heart for it. And um, yeah, over time made it to to Kerry. You, you oversold me a little bit there. I actually just did the graduate diploma. I uh, didn't do the bachelor's because I had the, okay. a teaching degree. So I did my teaching degree then came to Kerry, did some, uh, did the graduate diploma so that I could then go into the master's. So um, once I've sort of, well, I guess in the middle of that, I was, I've, I've been a school teacher for five years, been a primary school teacher. Um, and then, yeah, wrote my thesis during 2020, uh, the most insane year of my life that I, I can recall anyway, and was all well, teaching three days a week and writing a f- thesis full time. <laughs> so that was wild. But um, yeah. That, that's a bit about me. Married uh, for almost eight years and have three kids, uh, ages between five and eight months. So yeah, there's a lot going on for sure. Yeah. Um, so 2020 would have been an insane year for a lot of people, but I, I, I get it when you say it was an insane year for you because I remember supervising the thesis that you were writing, the research that you were conducting that year, and um, you really did tune through it. It was amazing how quickly you got through this project in spite of the fact that you were working three days a week. So um, let's get onto that. Let's let's reflect a little bit on your on your sure. research. You were exploring the preaching of C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. For our listeners, who was Spurgeon? And, you know, why is he worth knowing about today? And, you know, in particular, why do you admire him? Why did you want to study him? Yeah, yeah. Uh... Huge question. Spurgeon is, um, well, I guess one of the most well-known uh, Christians, at least 
at least commonly you'll see him sort of featured in books of like 50 Christians, every Christian should know uh, that kind of thing. So he's a Victorian era uh, preacher located, well, did most of his ministry in London uh, over a, a roughly 40 year chunk there, uh, died in 1892. And so is distant from our time, I suppose, but but close enough in history, if you start looking at the timelines a little bit, you know, there'll be people who were, say, alive in World War Two or were prominent in World War Two that were around or at least shared the same span of years with Spurgeon. So he's, he's relatively close, but he's a little bit removed from us as well, which makes him interesting. I think getting sort of a, a outside voice looking into our context, I, I thought would be really interesting. C.S. Lewis will talk about it's uh, the value of looking to history to see people who maybe aren't um, enamored with certain things that we're enamored with or don't assume certain things that we assume. So I wanted to get outside of our context and, and go back there. He's he's interesting because uh, he is he's a thoughtful, uh, well-read uh, theologically, I think, precise um, and aware pastor. Uh, but he's also well known as someone who is what you'd call a soul winner. Thousands of people come to know Jesus throughout his ministry. The The roles of his church record uh, new Christians coming in. And then also we have his published sermons, which will uh, were every week would be would be jotted down and would be printed and would be sent out all over the world into multiple languages and people would be converted through these as well. So he has this reputation of being, yeah, a soul winner and, and lots of people coming to know Jesus. He's arguably historically uh, the first megachurch pastor. And so uh, a lot of what we sort of see around that, um, whether you're a fan of that or not, but that, that sort of comes about uh, in the in the 1800s there with Spurgeon. He's also well known, I think, uh, in terms of the controversies he was involved in. So uh, throughout the course of his life, there's a really good book actually about this by a guy called Ian Murray uh, called The Forgotten Spurgeon. And he basically traces Spurgeon's life. So in addition to all that other stuff, he uh, so in the 1850s, he's he's and surrounded with controversy around uh, what we'll talk about about today, the doctrines of grace and Calvinism. Uh, and also in that decade, he uh, made some comments about slavery and particularly the the Southern states in the U S this is, if you look at the timelines a little bit before the, uh, the American civil war. And so uh, he got in a lot of trouble uh, with people who were Christians, but wanting to keep that going, jump ahead a decade. And he uh, is surrounded and controversy around what's called the Oxford movement uh, within Anglicanism in, in Britain. And so really around the role of the sacraments and to what, uh, what effect does baptism have? Uh, and to what extent can I say I have peace with God and I'm genuinely an uh, evangelical Christian if I maybe don't have faith necessarily, but I, but I have been baptized and I, and I take the sacraments. And then you get to the end of his life uh, at the 1880s, as uh, we, we talked about before the downgrade controversy uh, sort of, discussing what is Orthodox Christianity and probably uh, some historians will say this controversy actually killed him. Like it actually wore him out to the point where he, he wasn't around much longer. So there's that aspect of him. And as well, we see, I guess the charitable works he was into as well, particularly with the the orphanages and things like this. So, so a very full evangelical life and yeah, I found him inspiring and wanted to jump in a bit. Mm. And uh, incredibly prolific, yes. you know, uh, preached lots of sermons uh, yes, and, and ended up wrote lots of stuff. And, and a lot of his, his material, whether, you know, his his messages that he preached or his the, you know, the content that he was writing, it ended up, as you say, getting distributed right around the world and yeah. um, read very, very widely. So when you think about, I mean, you, you read, you've read every single one of his published sermons. Is that right? 
Yeah, I have. Though I cheated a little bit. Um, so I have I have the sixty three volumes, and I they're all online as well. And yeah. so what I would do because I was trying to balance this with everything else that was going on in life. I listened to I guess using a text to speech app that someone was reading them out to me, and I would just have the volume on hand. And anytime something relevant was said, uh, I'd have my highlighter there, and I just highlight it. And then I went back through with the relevant section that that I did for the thesis, and just found everything that was to do with it. Yeah, because I mean it's it's a lot of material. Material. I, I kind of became aware thinking, okay, how am I going to space this out? If I do one a year, I'll be well into my uh, 80s. <laughs> yes. So I've got to think of a way to speed this up. Yeah, but I have. I have, yes. Yeah, that's, I mean, that was amazing. I was just so so impressed when I heard that you'd worked your way through. I mean, like, this, this is hundreds of thousands of, of words. Um, so yeah. uh, do you have a favorite quote from everything you've read? Is there anything that's, that kind of stands out that you find yourself <laughs> reciting to other people occasionally? Yeah, for sure. He's He is known as being quotable. I would say, like, the caveat with this kind of thing is he's not really so much of a – well, put it this way. I don't think his best – your best experience you have with Spurgeon is by pulling out quotes and putting them on a GIF or a meme or something like that. He, he certainly has those, but I would say that you'll get the most out of Spurgeon by immersing yourself in a sermon or one of his books and just sort of letting him take you along the ride. You, you really have to sit with him for, you know, sustained train of thought. Um, so reading something like all of grace, you'll see just the Spurgeon magic in a, in a short book like that evangelistic book. But I would say, for an example of a quote, I, I find this one great. So he's, he's talking about, I guess, dull sermons and needing to avoid them. And he says, if some men were sentenced to hear their own sermons, it would be a righteous judgment upon them. And they would soon cry out with Cain, my punishment is greater than I can bear. <laughs> that's, I love that. I, I quote that one quite a lot. Mm. And, and I also highlight, I mean, like, that's a great example of Spurgeon's, um, he was punchy, eh? He was yes. really, really could be quite pungent, really yes. very direct and sometimes even caustic with um, yes. the way he, he engaged with um, with some ideas uh, or positions. Um, and, yet, sure. and yet, as you say, someone who deeply cared about people, loved Jesus and and desperately wanted to see other people love, fall in love yeah. with Jesus and, and experience, you know, the life in Christ that is available to us. So um, I Absolutely. guess that brings us to the really the heartbeat of your research, because you're thinking, here's this very reformed uh, yeah. church pastor who believes very much in the doctrines of grace, and he's, he's a Calvinist, and yet, yeah. on the other hand, is uh, just um, an incredibly enthusiastic evangelist, and, yeah. you know, he's He's preaching like he's he's an Arminian and believes that everyone has the freedom to choose, and yet he's deeply convinced that God is sovereign in, in yeah. the act of. So that's I guess that's is that starting to um, open up really what your research was about. You were looking at at Spurgeon's preaching. What what in particular? And and talk to us about the sort of I guess the question that really was animating your journey. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think for me, as I came to embrace the doctrines of grace, not long after I believe I was converted, uh, obviously with coming to embrace any theological system that might be slightly different than what you held before, you have to work through objections that you have to it. And then obviously the people that you're in community with will, will raise to it as well. And one of my first objections and probably the most common objection I heard was, well, w what does this mean for evangelism? And why would you uh, bother to put yourself out there? Maybe get egg on your face, maybe do something costly like 
plant a church or maybe go cross cultures, why would you do that if in fact God is certainly bringing about his purposes and he's not going to fail in doing that? You know, what are you actually, what are you adding to the kete anyway? Um, and so I read a lot uh, on that and had some pretty good answers to that in my head, I, I believe. Um, but I thought, okay, some of these guys... Uh, for sure, like they evangelized, and and there's there's great stories there, but aren't necessarily known historically as their main thing being evangelism. And Spurgeon, I think, is quite popular, uh, even for sure, outside of people that would embrace his particular understanding of you know soteriology and salvation. So I thought, okay, there's something to be learned from this guy. This isn't necessarily just theoretical to him. This is this is practical, and and you see right from his. Uh, the beginning of his Christian life, he's in, in the context he's in. For example, in the in the village of Waterbeach before he goes uh, to London to to be with the New Park Street Chapel or what will be the Met Tab, he's really serious about this. You know, he's going around to every house and he's he's spending his weekends doing this. He's making conversations. He's checking up on them. He really wants to see them come to know the Lord, and, and he's so big on this. Um, so yeah, and then, and then obviously you see the conversions that come later. All of that sort of foreshadowing what would be so strong on Calvinism, strong on evangelism i think in particular with this his conversion story actually really uh, has the nuggets of um or i guess the seeds of both of these emphases in his ministry as well so he's he's someone who's grown up with you know in generations of, of christian families and just hasn't been able to figure out the gospel hasn't been able to understand like what what must i do to be saved and so he has this this uh, one January, I believe it was, he's he's a teenager and he's unable to get to his own usual place of worship because of a snowstorm. And so he's he's blocked in and he's sort of, you know, waiting through the city. He's unable to get there and he finds, OK, all I can get to is this Methodist church. And the, the regular preacher for the Methodist church also was unable to get to the church because I guess he was you know, from a different part of town. And so there's Spurgeon will describe him as this uneducated man that just sort of was called upon to preach because he was there. And he preaches from Isaiah saying, uh, look to me, uh, all the ends of the earth and be saved. And he looks at Spurgeon and says, you'll be miserable. I can see you're miserable. And unless you obey this text right now and look to Jesus, you'll continue to be miserable. So it's this very profound providential act where Spurgeon is almost forced into this building this man is forced to get up and preach and there's this just profound gospel moment this this evangelical moment so the the two strains are both there and i think he retains those throughout the course of his life and and it makes him yeah really fascinating to to answer this question and to be worth a hearing i think can you just to be clear um, for some of our listeners who, who might not yet really kind of have grabbed hold of the tension, well, um, the, the doctrines of grace that, you know, the, the fundamental tenets of kind of a reformed Calvinist perspective, um, yeah. how, how, how are they specifically in some people's minds anyway at odds with the call and the, the command to preach the gospel and, you know, to, to share our faith evangelistically? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the last hundred years, the Reformed view or the Calvinistic view has been summed up with the little acronym TULIP. Uh, It's not actually as old as, I guess, the Synods of Dort or anything like that, but it's helpful. So basically, uh, it says that, first of all, that human beings are in a state of being under sin uh, or being in the flesh as a result of our first father's sin, Adam. And so we are actually unable to respond to God in a positive way. We do respond to him, but we don't respond to him positively. We're unable to keep his laws and we're unable to uh, even take him up on the 
I guess, offer in the command of the gospel. Um, and so in light of that, God's, God knows that none of us will be saved on our own. And so God actually chooses from uh, the race of humanity to save some for himself. And he chooses them. And this is sort of the key, I guess, difference with, I guess, a lot of prominent theology today is that he doesn't weigh any conditions that these people are meeting uh, as to whether he will choose them to be saved. So completely outside of anything about them, any virtues, any uh, merit, anything like that, he, he chooses them to be saved. Jesus dies for them to infallibly make sure that this particular group of people will not just have the opportunity to be saved, but will certainly be saved. And then at some point in the course of their life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will be converted. They'll be born again. Uh, perhaps you'd want to use the language of Paul in First Corinthians, they'll be called. Uh, and that, the I guess the key tenet here is that it's irresistible, that God doesn't attempt to to do it and the person can offer some resistance. God does it in a way where he, he changes their hearts. And then once they're uh, I guess saved and redeemed, they will remain Christian for the rest of their life until they go into the uh, either death or in the age to come. So, so the, I guess the tension with that is if God is infallibly doing this, if he's chosen already, who's going to be saved and that group can't change. And if he's going to irresistibly work that out in their life at some point, then what, what's the point in us actually making sacrifices or maybe putting ourselves in uncomfortable situations or raising our children in a way that really emphasizes the gospel and makes them aware of the gospel. If in fact, it's all going to go according to God's plan anyway. So I think that's uh, the objection people have to it. And I think it's fair. I think it's a fair question for sure. Mm. And in Spurgeon, you, you know, you had encountered someone who brought these two, these two positions together in a way that, you know, seemed really fruitful, really encouraging with heaps of potential for, for life, discipleship, preaching today. Yeah. Um, so what did you discover as you, as, you, as you dug into this question and sifted your way through sermon after sermon? <laughs> yeah, so much, honestly. And I think that the discouraging thing, which probably uh, all people that have done this process would agree on, is you, you discover and you learn far more than you can ever put into the thesis. Um, I, I came into it thinking, oh my goodness, am I going to have enough to talk about? And, and you quickly discover discover the opposite's the case there's so many things that just can't go into it and go by the wayside so it, it was a really awesome experience immersing myself in it. and i'd recommend to a lot of people out there find someone that you think is a profound thinker and just wade through a good bulk of their stuff and you'll find that you're challenged a lot you'll find that you uh, agree a lot you'll probably find there'll be some spots you can't go with them on but just to even know where you part ways with them it's i, I think it's a, a good experience i'd recommend people to do that uh, but in terms of my key discoveries so what, one of them was particularly around preaching um, because uh, so the first chapter I'd sort of talked about what was this theology of unconditional election the second chapter I sort of talked about um, how, how should we go about evangelism then and so part of that comes into well specifically what did he do uh, as he preached and, and what would he call I guess effective preaching and so what what I discovered there was uh, in, in reading works like his lectures to my students really good stuff or he's got a book called on all-round ministry or a lesser known book called Eccentric Preachers, he, he sort of w wades into what what is effective preaching? How, how should you communicate effectively? What is something that's going to grab the attention of people and and meet them where they're at? And um, there's a there's a guy around today called Paul Windsor, who's, who's done a bit of writing on preaching, Kiwi guy. And he sort of sums up effective preaching as, in terms of these five elements. And I think this sums up Spurgeon really well. He'll talk about, obviously, you want it to be biblical. So you want to the, the message should be drawn from the text. You want to say it in a way uh, that if you were to have Paul sitting beside you, he would say, yep, that's what I was trying to say. 
Paul, um, Paul the Apostle. As, Paul as the Apostle, person. yeah, sorry, not Paul Windsor. Yeah. But, but yeah, Paul Windsor maybe as well, but I'm, I'm meaning the Apostle. So you, you want to have a biblical message. And I think where Spurgeon and, and Paul Windsor as well would sort of, I guess, critique some preaching is that you just stop there. You just go, okay, yeah, I've said the true things from the Bible. That's it. We're done. So in addition, you want to consider yourself. Like, who am I? What's my background? Uh, what what am I bringing to the table? How am I coming across potentially in ways that I'm not aware of? You want to be aware of that and, and I guess, hone that and try and carve out a particular way of being that, that comes across how you're actually intending to. Uh, you also want to consider your audience. Who are these people? Uh, maybe what's the educational level? What's their context? What's their stories? Getting in contact with them. So you know that, I guess, what level they'll be able to understand what you're saying or or how certain things will come across. Uh, you also want to understand the, the society and culture that you live in. So what time am I living in? What are the issues at the moment? What are the what are the things that people are thinking about? To maybe borrow from the philosopher Charles Taylor, like what's the social imaginary at the moment? What is plausible to people at the moment? What narratives ring true, uh, you could say? And even, you know, what's prominent in terms of uh, pop culture, music, movies, literature, novels, current events, news, th- these sorts of things. So being aware of those things and knowing that these will be shaping yourself and the people as well. And then also, um, f- fifthly, bringing it to Jesus, that the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. You want your message to convey Jesus and make people understand Jesus so they can come to terms with him and take him up on the gospel. So with that in mind, Spurgeon's got a lot of practical advice on how to do that it's not super theoretical it's just really practical and he in that i guess sort of fitting that in with the bigger picture of what we're talking about will frame it in terms of god using means to bring his people into himself and so the question he opens with uh in the lectures to my students his sort of book on how to go about uh, the ministerial life and how to develop yourself and that he'll talk about you wanting to be a sharp tool in the hand of the Lord. And so God is sovereign for sure. And God's working out his purposes, but in the same way that if you want to you know, accomplish a task in your yard or maybe renovating, if you're going to choose a tool to do that job, you're going to choose the most, I guess, well-equipped tool for the job. And for sure, sometimes God goes outside that. Sometimes God uses people and you think, wow, really? But usually you're going to use the best suited tool. And so you want to make yourself a sharp tool in the hands of the Lord. So, so that, that's big. So particularly in his use of humor, uh, he, he's really funny. And I think probably that's just him and his personality. Some biographers will say, you know, the dude was literally cracking jokes on his deathbed. You see humor coming into his sermons a lot. And he will talk about that as something to, I guess, retain the attention of people, uh, almost as a little bit of relief from the intensity of what's being talked about. He'll talk about being intentionally startling. Um, you, you sort of alluded to that before, coming in with a bit of gusto and saying something that's really going to uh, evoke either strong agreement or strong disagreement. And so you're, you're hearing uh, what he's saying in quite a challenging way. And so he'll talk about there's, there's an art to that. Uh, all these sorts of practical elements of preaching riddled through his works that I would say, um, yeah, it's worth taking the time to go and learn how to how to preach well from him for sure. Uh, I would say, uh, did you have a question there, man? I don't want to take over the podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, this is good. I mean, it's your research. Yeah, keep talking us through some of the some yep. of the concrete practical suggestions that he had for being a sharp tool in the hands of God insofar as, you know, preaching, proclaiming the word of God's concern. Yeah, so I mean another one with that is he would say you want to be someone who knows scripture really well and and he would sort of counsel against someone who basically only engages with scripture in terms of what's my passage for this week and okay, I'm gonna like 
I'm going into this basically blind. I have no background knowledge of scripture more widely, of systematic theology widely. I'm just going to go into this passage completely blank and just go from there and then jump into the passage. He was like, you want to be a person who just really, uh, in a lot of your time, will engage with scripture, who's reading theology, who's reading commentaries, uh, in a context that's not directly pertaining to the sermon you're about to prepare, just so you're immersed in the word, you know, you know, the word and the Bible's sort of second nature to you. The word of God's powerful and it, and it has an, an effect and it doesn't return void. And so using biblical phraseology can be good, but even just having it, knowing that in your mind, the thrust of everything you're saying, you can, you can point to chapter and verse. Um, so, so really, really big on that for sure. He, he, yeah, he would also talk about, uh, I guess, the, the context that you find yourself in and who you surround yourself with. So he, he in uh, starting this pastor's college, that, that was one of the other things he did, training up people to to uh, minister in, in various contexts in, in Britain, but also also beyond there. He, he would talk about you, you deliberately wanting to immerse yourself in the lives of other people, not just... Uh, people who are in the exact same boat as you. So he deliberately didn't make accommodation for the pastor's college. He'd say, we want you to actually be uh, living with other ordinary people who aren't immersing themselves in literature and, and things like this all the time. Because what you're going to do is make this holy little huddle where you have your own inside jokes, you have your own things you're all familiar with, and you become kind of useless in, in getting out there with, with other people. So he would deliberately take public transport. He would deliberately strike up conversations with people who were just, you know, ordinary people out and about learn. How do these people talk? How do I, um, you know, sound like them? How do I not use vocabulary? That's way out of reach. A, a lot of those kinds of things. Yeah. He would also talk about have not being afraid to be sincere and, and earnest in, in how you speak. I think that's Definitely something a lot of Kiwis probably struggle with. Our culture can be fairly light. And as soon as we get to something that's a, of a little bit more weight or a little bit more serious, we, we quickly want to bring it back to, um, hey, it's all fine, but you know, I'm, I'm really chill. Don't worry about me. And he would say, don't worry about sitting there with the heavy stuff for a little bit. Like the, the message of the Lord is actually heavy in, in a lot of aspects. And so don't be ashamed to be known for that as well. So yeah, I mean, I mean there's a lot and I would just recommend to get the full brunt of it. Uh, jump into lectures to my students and I would recommend anyone who's in ministry to go and read that. You'll you'll find a lot of nuggets in there for sure. But in terms of beyond that, because that, that was handy, I guess, just practically and how, how do you go about this? But I guess in sort of, the, the specific question of the thesis, which was how do you pull these things together? He, he's really good in there. And it's unsurprising that he's thought it through a lot. So how do you reconcile the fact that God has chosen a people for himself in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world? And at a certain point in their life, they, they will certainly come to faith. How do you reconcile that with the fact that I need to be a part of this and I need to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the harvest and I need to hone myself to be as a sharper tool as I can be in the, in the hand of the Lord. We've already talked about how God uses, I guess, the most fitted tool for the job. So that, that's one thing that's definitely key. He would also emphasize that regardless of our understanding of how everything works in the big picture, uh, we find ourselves as creatures and, and we sit on the other side of the, I guess, creator uh, creation divide. And so to some extent, the choice to be obedient to the Lord uh, isn't predicated on whether we understand what he's doing or not. Um, we don't sit in the judgment seat and decide, oh, actually, Lord, uh, I get that you're telling me to do that, but I've got some theoretical issues around that, so I'm not going to. It's like, well, have your theoretical issues for sure. Have your questions for sure. We've all got them. But at the end of the day, you 
none of that comes above doing what the Lord says. And the Lord has told us to go into every nation. The Lord's told us to pray that the word would go forth and that Paul would, for example, speak it with boldness. So we're to do that and just, if you can't get your head around it, just park that for a second. Spurgeon will talk about that. He would also say, we don't actually know who the elect are. And so I think a lot of people assume, okay, yeah, we're going to go into this um, if, if Calvinism is true and, and maybe they'll glow green or something and we can just go and talk to the people that we know will be saved. But Spurgeon rightly points out that Scripture doesn't speak in that way. The, the gospel is to go out to everybody. And um, we we don't know what God's doing there. You have no idea what the next conversation you have will do. Uh, we don't know the future. So there's there's that for sure as well. Uh, and then I guess on the side of uh, maybe the person who's hearing the gospel, you know, maybe there's questions about the justice of God in this or questions as, as to how this works. Spurgeon, uh, for sure, is in, a, I guess, a category of Calvinism that for maybe lack of a better a, a word you could call low Calvinism. Not everybody who, for example, came together to put like the Westminster Confession of Faith together all agreed on it every detail of how it works and, and they've deliberately sort of put that confession together so that it's, I mean, it doesn't feel vague to us. It feels like far more specific than probably any, I guess, contemporary statement of faith, but to them, they're intentionally being a little bit vague about it. So there's room for multiple positions in there. And so you have, I guess, differences in how you understand the relationship between God's decrees around everything that will come to pass, which will include some people being saved, but also some people not being saved. Uh, there'll be different understandings around how the decrees of God work with that. And, and when, for example, in Romans 9, Paul will talk about God choosing from one lump vessels for destruction versus vessels for mercy. What What is that lump? And so some will say, okay, it's just sort of humanity generically considered in, in the mind of God. And then some people, including, I, I would say, Spurgeon, uh, and I would say Paul as well, will think, or will argue that that's actually talking about us and our, and our sinfulness. And so God's actually... When he chooses someone to be saved out of that, he's, he's bestowing mercy upon them. And if he doesn't, he's not actually forcing anything upon them that they're not willing themselves anyway. And so there's a huge emphasis in light of that on the accountability and the will and the sin even of, of all of us. And I guess a strong emphasis that God cannot be blamed for our own evil, or our own hardness of heart. Um, it's truly, uh, see, he quotes that passage in, in Matthew 23 about, you know, if you go into the, well, I think he says above the frame of the door of hell is written the words you would not. And, and I think, yeah, that's true. The the decree of God's not arbitrarily imposed on us from outside of us. Our, our own hardness of heart and our own evil is from us. Um, and it, it's, it's most truly from us. With that, there's obviously mystery. Um, so where did this come from? How did Adam first sin? And um, I think Spurgeon and, and myself as well, I'm pretty happy just to appeal to mystery at that point. I don't know exactly how that worked, but um, I know that God is not to be blamed. And I know that our evil is from us. And so, so he emphasizes that. And I think that opens up a lot of room for how this could work with evangelism. I think as well, sort of maybe on the positive side, not just sort of explaining away stuff potentially, but actually what does this bring to evangelism? Um, Spurgeon will talk about the, the beauty of unconditional election and evangelism, meaning that you know your success is inevitable. The church knows its mission will be completed. We're not going into it thinking, okay, this entirely completely depends on us and maybe we will fail the Lord. It's rather going in. God has his people as that prophecy to Paul comes in the book of Acts. I have many people in this city. And so we know uh, that as long as the Lord tarries and, and he hasn't returned yet, there are still people 
uh, out there who are brothers and sisters and, and they will be brought in and maybe maybe you'll be one that brings them in and so go in knowing that there will be success he, he will uh, he says to his, the first student in his passes college a guy by the name of Medhurst who was training to preach uh, and, he, and he was coming to Spurgeon saying I don't have any conversions when I preach and Spurgeon said to him well do you go in expecting a conversion every time you preach and Medhurst says well of course not and he, Spurgeon said to him well that's your problem man um, <laughs> you, you, you need to expect that this will happen going to say that um yeah reminds me of of William Carey after yeah. whom you know Carey Baptist College is named yeah um, someone who you know his his great work was an inquiry into the the mean the use of the means of grace that, yes you know yep god is sovereign but he's chosen as you say to yeah. to work through human means in order to achieve his good and gracious purposes and um yes. and so you know the the yeah the question is how do we participate in the work that god's doing yes at, at his invitation and yes. um you know william carey's other great statement was so therefore expect great things from god yes and attempt great things for God, but in that order, you know, yes, expect God is at work and God yeah. wants to work and God has good purposes that he will work through you. So expect that. And yeah. on the basis of that, attempt great things for him. Uh, I love that. And so that's, I mean, effectively what you're kind of, you have been doing in this research is reflecting on, yes. on how God's sovereignty works with human freedom and our agency. And, um, and then, so what would it look like? I mean, what, what does Spurgeon teach us um, yeah. from a very different era about, about how we might proclaim the good news effectively for sure it's good yeah William Carey's big on this for sure because I think a lot of people uh enjoy or at least you know assume to some degree what we know as the I guess the modern missionary movement and don't know perhaps the the mindset or the theology of a guy like William Carey yeah absolutely fascinating I love that quote from him and very much the same emphasis uh in Spurgeon um there's multiple things going on at the same time and it's good to take account but I'm going in and I want to have a lot of gusto about how I serve the Lord. I don't want to be sluggish. I, I want to be high energy. I want to serve him with zeal. But at the same time, I'm not just doing this by myself. It's the grace of God that's with me for sure. Mm. So with that as well, um, what Spurgeon says unconditional election brings to the table for evangelism is a, a good motivator for patience in the mind of the evangelist too, knowing that you've been brought from darkness to light. And if it was just you left to yourself, you wouldn't have done that. And so the, you're actually in some ways in the same boat as everyone you talk to. And so you don't really have the right to sit here and be high and mighty and act like you're better than them, or you've got it together more than them, or you're sharper than them, or you're, you are more humble than them or anything like that. None of those are the ultimate reasons as to why you're, you're saved. And so uh, a lot of grounding and encouragement to be really patient and, and gentle, you know, be, be willing to get egg on your face to not return evil for evil and all of this uh, because you know that the Lord's worked on your behalf and he's worked in your life and he he would also say it it does bring stuff to the table particularly in, in an evangelistic setting in, in church for example when the gospel is being preached it's funny Someone like J.R. Packer will say, you never, ever talk about election in front of a non-believer. He would say, he would call it a family secret. And I think there is wisdom in that for sure. It can be done really poorly. Spurgeon is just, in terms of just the facts of history, really on the opposite side of that. He would, he, he doesn't hold back in talking about it in front of anyone at all. And he would say that, it can actually be really useful to awaken need in your hearers. And and I can testify to this in my own conversion experience, you know, like I, I came away from a sermon and he talked about, uh, well, he alluded to the prophecy of the Valley of the dry bones in Ezekiel. And, and um, he sort of said, 
he was praying to God in this sermon, we don't wait for them to open their hearts because they'll never open their hearts. We need you to move. We need you to uh, act as, as we are here together. And I remember just hearing this sermon and being so aware of the fact I can't even move an inch to save myself at all. I, I remember just feeling really stuck and really checkmated and, and literally, you know, in my head anyway, praying to Jesus, Lord, I cannot save myself. Um, my will is way too fickle to to bring this about. I need you to actually save me and and change me. And I wouldn't have been feeling the need to ask the Lord questions like that or approach him in that way, unless I really felt paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And so Spurgeon will say, if you do it the right way, making someone feel paralyzed and that only God can save them is actually a really good thing. I feel like what I can't actually bring anything. And so with that as well, he would say, you can... I think in a non-manipulative way, I think in a way that is actually very genuine and very true, make people feel like they're missing out by not coming to Christ, uh, knowing that, okay, here's this God and he is saving people. And around you, as the gospel said, there will be people likely that are coming to Jesus. And if you hold back on that, if you don't come, you're actually missing out on this great thing that God's doing. And so there's this motivation, like, I, I want to be part of this. I want to be with this God. This God doesn't need me. This God's not... I'm going to be any worse off if he doesn't have me. It's it's me that's going to lose if I don't come to him. And so there's this huge motivation there. He quotes uh, John Newton on this saying, um, well, no, he talks about John Newton saying that he put Calvinism into his sermons as he put sugar in his tea. Don't be afraid of putting an extra lump in now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So f- that, that surprised me. I wasn't expecting uh, that to come up in the research. I would have thought Spurgeon would be very similar to Packer in that regard, mm-hmm. but no, he, he wasn't. I know. And I see the logic. I see the logic, you know, the, um, the effect of that. So when you, like, if at Kerry and this, you would have experienced something of this kind of pressure in your research, you know, we want to be a theological college that is integrative, you know, in our theology. So we're wanting to bring the riches of the Christian faith, scripture, and the church's, you know, reflection on scripture throughout history. We want to bring that into conversation with the realities of our context, wherever the Lord has placed us, and and the rhythms of Christian discipleship and, and ministry. You know, what are the implications for ministry and discipleship on the ground where we are right now? So that would have been something that was driving you in your research. I mean, right. when you think about all of these these insights, what, what are what are one or, one or two ways, you know, quite concrete, practical ways in which you would say your research, this research, has actually shaped you as a as a follower of Jesus, or has actually shaped your ministry as a preacher of the word. Yeah, yeah, big time. Um, it's so key. And I think that's the thing I enjoyed most about it is every section along the way, I was just seeing so much practical benefit of this for our time. Obviously, you know, Spurgeon was in his context and he wouldn't do it the same way if he lived now uh, than he lived then. So it has to be integrated. It has to be, uh, you know, we have to consider how this looks. I would say just being challenged on the value of evangelism. I think a lot of people, I mean, but, Calvinists can do this for sure. I, I think maybe slip into this mode where you're going, okay, well, God's doing it. So let's, we don't feel a high motivation for that. And I hear that critique. I would also say, I think there's a real issue in willingness to engage in evangelism outside of the reformed world as well mm-hmm. nowadays. And so I guess for me, an encouragement to go, okay, you're not bigger than this. 
that this isn't beneath you. This is something that you could be doing and there's a, there's a challenge here for you. And so, yeah, there's there's been opportunities for that, obviously in preaching, but there's other ways I get out there as well. So I, I still teach uh, an hour a week at a local Christian school and I engage with year 13s and I sort of go into this class. It's sort of like a, I guess, a biblical worldview type class. I understand that some of them are believers, some of them aren't. And so I go in there with a little bit of apologetic stuff, just talking about, you know, the existence of God. And if I make my case, I guess, fairly well, then what are the implications of that for you? And what would the demands of his son be on you as as one of his creatures? And so just being able to get out there, you know, sometimes the conversations go really well. Sometimes the conversations aren't as fun, but knowing this is what the Lord's work is. And I want to put myself in as many contexts as I can like this, even if you've got to put yourself out there a little bit, there's a, there's a really awesome uh, dude from our church who come, comes from Brazil. He's been here maybe a couple years now. Awesome guy. And he uh, has connected him with a group in Tauranga that's been around for, I think 40 years. And I think, the only time it hasn't happened was was during the COVID lockdown. So you can imagine, uh, I guess, the little tradition here. But there's a, they own a van and they load it up with pies and, and coffees and things like this. And they'll go out on weekend nights. Um, just different groups from different churches around the city will jump in this van. They just go out and just spark up conversations with people and chat with them. So, you know, I, I went along on, on a few of those. I'm, I'm looking at doing some again in the next few months. And, yeah, you find yourself just, you know, outside the club at 12 o'clock at night, having this hour long conversation, really, really good conversation with it. You know, just things like that. You're freezing cold and you know, you're going to be uh, exhausted the next day as you're trying to wrangle your kids and everything, but just knowing the Lord's work is here and this can actually be done. This should be done. And, and we're not past this. We may have advanced a lot in the church and maybe we think we're uh, progressive and we've got, we've got a really good understanding around things, but you never actually get past the need to evangelize and share your faith with people. So yeah. that's been a big thing for me as well. That's actually gone into the podcast that I am doing as well. Just the point of it is getting on people who are Christian, but weren't raised Christian and just getting them to share their stories. And the feedback I've been getting is it's just really encouraging hearing these stories. And I feel stirred up to, you know, maybe I could go and do this. This isn't out of reach for me. So, so that would be one for sure. And then oh man, there's so many, uh, there's, there's so many, I, I think, yeah, we've talked about it a little already, but being a sharp tool in, in the hand of the Lord, don't coast through the Christian life, don't do the bare minimum, uh, but really try to be zealous and get your head around what you're doing and be the best tool that you can be in the hand of the Lord. Get your head around the theology, get your head around what the the history of the church has said about some of these things in the past. Uh, work on yourself. If there's character flaws or... Um, I guess ways that you're coming across a little bit awkward that that aren't working that well. Be conscious of that. Try and develop. Try and grow. Yeah, don't don't just coast. So yeah, yeah th- those would be a couple. And Spurgeon um, engages with those that issue of character and um, yes. and the whole person, the whole life eh, yes. of the speaker or the or the witness to God's word. That's you know we I, I I hate the saying preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words. I think people use that as an out. Um, and sure. you know yeah. I think we need to use words. That's how God works. He uses words to create and he uses words to recreate. And um, yeah. but certainly our lives do bear witness to the words that we're For speaking. Sure. And so yeah, and you know I think that's really important. I um oh this has been such a rich conversation. Thank you, Phil. I really, really appreciate it. I um I think of Tim Keller actually as we've been kind of chatting. Yeah. You know, his his passing still, you know, not that yeah. long ago, and the way in which as a reformed uh, you know, conservative evangelical, he was also a very, very zealous evangelist. And yeah. um and one of his sayings, which I think perhaps Spurgeon modeled brilliantly, was 
preach the gospel at all times, both to believers and unbelievers. Make time, because absolutely. we've actually got nothing else. We, you yeah. know, the, the church needs to be re-evangelized in its own gospel. Yeah. We, we, you know, right. we, we forget that, you know, and that's why the scriptures constantly call us to remember what God has yes. done. Yeah. Um, and as we're renewed in our faith by hearing the gospel again and again and again, we're much more inclined <laughs> to be sharing it because, you know, we're, we're yeah, we're re-enlivened by the, the beauty, the glory of Jesus and what he's given us. Mm. Absolutely. Hey, um, thanks, Phil. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, have you got one sentence? In one sentence, what do you think Spurgeon, if he was to, to time travel to you know New Zealand 2023, <laughs> what might he say to, you know, to us, particularly to the church in Aotearoa today? In one sentence, wow. <laughs> it's, it's a great question. One of the, bio, one of the biographers reflects on this writing maybe in the thirties or forties and with, you know, a lot of water gone under the bridge since then. So it's a even maybe more important question to think about. I think in one sentence, he would say fight for orthodoxy, boldly evangelize and be passionate about theology. Mm. Something like that. I mean, he would say it much mm. more beautifully than that, but the mm. crux of it would be in that. Yeah. That is so good. I think that could be the byline for Kerry Baptist College. <laughs> Fight for orthodoxy, um, be bold in evangelism, and um, and what was the last one? Uh, be passionate about theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. because it really does feed and shape who we are and, and how we go about you know, yeah, our lives and our discipleship. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, if you've enjoyed this podcast, Kerry has a range of courses that can help you learn how to weave together God's word, God's world, and God's work. And a great place to start uh, with us is, is a course like Insights to Church History, in which we trace some of the really significant turning points and significant figures in the history of Christianity around the world. And another great course is Introduction to Preaching which Paul Windsor teaches here at Kerry. Oh, there you go. Um, and, uh, and so there, you know, you'll come to terms with a really good approach to preaching, biblical preaching, expository preaching, where cool. we take God's word, the text of scripture, uh, God's world in which we live, the society that our listeners inhabit, the lives of our listeners, uh, our lives as a preacher, and how the word is affecting us and ultimately the living word the one to whom the written word points and all of these these five elements are critical to faithful and, and effective biblical preaching so if you want more information about any of this uh, about on-site distance study just visit kerry.ac.nz 